If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I'm excited for you to meet Brian Long, CEO and co-founder of Attentive, the most comprehensive mobile messaging platform for brands. Since launching Attentive in 2016, Attentive has grown to work with over 5,000 pioneering brands from CB2 to Michaels and drives an average of 20% of total online revenue for its customers. The company has raised almost a billion dollars in venture capital to date, $866 million to be exact. Before Attentive, Brian was the CEO and co-founder of Tap Commerce, a mobile advertising company that was acquired by Twitter in 2014. Brian has held a variety of executive products and sales roles at tech companies, both large and small, including Twitter, CNET.com, uh, CBS Interactive, Crossboard Mobile, and Tap Commerce. He has been named one of the top 100 in New York City technology by Business Insider and 40 Under 40 in marketing. Brian holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania. And with that, let's welcome Brian. Brian, I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, let's just start with first things first. What is Attentive in your own words? Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Uh, Attentive is a text message marketing communication platform. Uh, we're working with over 5,000 different brands to hopefully be the number one way that the brands uh, communicate with their consumers. So Brian, let's go back to 2016. What was the aha moment? Where did it come from to decide to go build Attentive? And what did those early days really look like as you figured out product market fit? Yeah, so when we were first getting started, we had the idea to use text messaging for businesses to communicate with their workforce, as well as potentially with their customers. So we actually built it originally focused on the workforce side of communication. So imagine like a big warehouse um, where someone wanted to talk to all the people that worked at the warehouse via text messaging. Uh, but, you know, I went around and I pitched it to uh, over 150 different uh, demos. And, you know, again and again, we heard not a lot of interest in using it to talk to employees, but a lot of interest in using it to talk to consumers. So we decided to focus on that. And we, we took that product to market and, uh, you know, saw a lot more interest and, and success in uh, using it as a tool for businesses to communicate with customers via text messaging. I want to go back and... You know, Attentive relies on real-time behavioral data to send text messages that convert into revenue. What were some of the big unlocks, either on the technology side or in user behavior, that really allowed Attentive to take off? So sort of said differently, why was 2016 the right time for you to really start this business? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, obviously, text messaging has been around for a long time. We didn't think that there was necessarily a category leader but there are a whole bunch of companies doing it. So we looked at, you know, hey, why isn't someone succeeding? You know, why isn't this going well? And one of the biggest reasons we uncovered was that they were not sending messages that were personalized to customers. We had some experience in this area because we all had worked at a company before this one, a company called Tap Commerce that did mobile retargeting ads 
which were like hyper-personalized ads. So we used some of what we learned doing that and, and tried to make the text messages hyper-personalized as well. And that was a big unlock for us because once we were able to, to really personalize the text messages, it uh, performed much better for the marketer. And also the consumers just liked receiving them more. I love that. I want to walk through the attentive customer experience because as you said, 5,000 brands, you have huge brands like CB2 or Michael's. What is it like for them? Let's take CB2 just as an example to turn on attentive. What does that look like? And what is my experience like as the end customer? It really all begins with creating an easy way for consumers to sign up to get text messages. We provide uh, a big tool set, our growth tool set, that gives companies a way to grow their text message list in a compliant manner. There are uh, pretty tight regulations in the United States so that you can only send marketing-based text messages to people that have given express written consent. In other words, that have signed up and said, I want to get these messages. We designed and built this technology we call our two-tap sign-up. You've probably seen this on, you know, you mentioned uh, Michaels or CB2. If you go to those websites right now and you'll notice there's a sign-up for email and then there's a sign-up for text message, that's attentive. And what happens is the user only has to tap once in order to generate the text message and then tap again to send the message. So it's just two taps in order to send a message and sign up to get text messages from the brand. So it just makes it really easy for the consumer to engage the brand. You've talked a lot about the importance of getting ongoing customer feedback. And I loved your tip that you should always end a feedback session with a quantitative question, asking someone to rate their interest in your product. Tell us a little bit of how you've used that approach to make attentive stronger over time. People almost universally are very polite and they struggle to give uh, negative feedback. And when they do give it, they tend to sugarcoat it. So it can be really hard to separate fish from fowl on what's a real problem versus, you know, what's kind of like a nice to have. So I think it's very helpful to get customers to actually take surveys we do surveys and we also incentivize those surveys. You know, we'll, we'll give the customer gift cards for taking them. Give me written thoughts, but also give me a score. You know, for instance, how much do you care about this feature on a one to 10 scale? And it's, it's amazing how often you'll be on a call with a customer and you'll get out and you'll say, man, they really wanted this new product. We should go build this thing. And then you look at the survey results and they'll give it a three. And you're like, well, you gave it a three. Why'd you give it a three? And you read the response. They say, yeah, it looks cool, but you know, it's just... Not, not a big priority for me right now. So I, I do think it helps you get harder, more real feedback rather than uh, getting it live, which can be challenging. One of the things I also found just amazing, uh, in 2020, your customer base grew by 270%, which is pretty crazy. So not only were you going through COVID on a personal level, but the business was exploding. What was COVID's impact on e-commerce broadly, but then specifically on attentive? We were always kind of building up the usage of text messaging, particularly for e-com retail businesses, where you know, when we started selling it in 2017, it was not very popular. Almost no one was doing it. But slowly but surely, as more brands started doing it, other brands started seeing other brands doing it, and it begins to snowball. The biggest snowball really came for us after the holiday season of 2019. So that was kind of the first big holiday where we had a whole bunch of major brands. You know, you mentioned some of them earlier, uh, you know, brands like a CB2 or Michaels or, you know, uh, Urban Afters, whatever it is. We started having those type of brands live in the holiday of 2019. And a lot of marketers saw it. And then in the beginning of uh, 2020, that we started seeing a lot more interest. 
Um, and then, of course, you mentioned COVID, right? So COVID comes out. Initially, it was chaos and no one really knew what was going to happen. But pretty quickly, you know, we saw e-commerce and retail grow tremendously. Um, and not only do we see, you know, the businesses that are focused on e-com retail grow, but a whole bunch of other businesses that hadn't focused on e-commerce before all of a sudden they wanted to focus on it. So those all really helped us to get more customers and also get more consumers signed up to get text messages. Brian, as somebody who's staring at the future of commerce um, and really has such a, a, an interesting purview, if we fast forward five years, a decade, what do you think are the biggest things that are changing uh, around consumers' behavior? And what do you see that's obvious to you about the future of shopping and online interaction uh, with e-commerce that maybe isn't obvious to everyone listening? In terms of like what's coming up, I do think that reducing the friction from commerce overall is one of the things that I think should be at the center for almost every company, just making it easier to buy. And I'm still kind of astonished by the fact that uh, mobile web is still almost about half the conversion rate of uh, desktop or iPad. And we've got to smooth that out. And that may mean making payments smoother, but I also think that could mean um, taking a lot of the payment process to uh, the text message or other engagement channel directly. So someone being able to just send a text message to order pizza again, or, or send a message, text message to reply to a recommended you know, pair of pants and say, I want them. I've had a couple of these experiences myself, you know, where, where someone will text you and say, hey, you know, do you want to buy this again? Or we just got this in. And it's pretty magical. And it's, and it's so much easier than going through the site, entering and all the information and stuff like that. So I think seeing that become very, very fluid, I kind of look at, um, for inspiration, I look at something like WeChat in China, right? Where, you know, China, WeChat is like how everyone's engaging with the internet now. And a, and a business will kind of like do everything from uh, the purchase to the customer service to the payment transaction, everything in WeChat. And I think it's possible that a lot of that could, could happen in text messaging. Tell us a little bit more about, you said that right now, desktop, mobile is half of where desktop is in terms of customers following through. Did I hear that right? Yeah, in terms of conversion, right? So if someone is is on a desktop website, they might convert, you know, the percentage of people that buy something that visit the site on average, it might be something like four to five percent. Whereas on a, a mobile site, it's more like two to three percent. Why do you think that is? Why? I mean, I, maybe I'm just a busy mom who does everything on my phone. What do you think's driving that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different things. I think that if someone is on a mobile device, they could be somewhere that it's not easy for them to take out a credit card or you know, have a password to pay and log into a PayPal or something like that. It's easier, I think, also to get distracted on a mobile device and get sort of jumped to a different tab and not complete the transaction. So I do think that on a desktop, it's just kind of easier for people to, to complete it. Also, there's, there's certain things where, you know, on a desktop, you can sometimes maybe see the picture a little clearer. Um, you can read the details more easily. There's a number of different, I think, UX things there as well. Brian, last sort of thing on the future, but as somebody who gets to see the future of e-commerce, maybe not related to attentive, are there any other trends or things that you're paying close attention to that you think are really, really important to the future? Is the way that websites and e-commerce websites designed today, is that the way that people are going to buy stuff 10 years from now? Is that going to be the biggest channel? You know, today it's a, it's the massive channel, right? But would it make more sense for people to be able to buy stuff, you know, via voice, via text, via some sort of social channel where you just reply to a, a social posting and buy it? 
I think that we'll see um, a lot of new experimentation and different ways for people to buy, and those will become much more prominent. Hey, I want to buy this thing. You just point at the QR code. The QR code creates a, a purchase or, or a text to buy it immediately. I think just things that, that sort of turn on its head this way that we kind of built e-commerce to date. But when you look at it more, you're like, is this really the right way we should be doing it? Like, did we just kind of take a catalog and try to put it on a computer screen? And it's, it's not really personalized. It's not individualized like at all, really. Uh, you know, when, when you go to the, the website, you're usually seeing the same thing that I'm seeing. And, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. I think the retail example too, like, you know, when you walk into a retail store, there's someone to take care of you and help point you in the right direction for what you might need. And if you've been there before, they might even know, right? Whereas on a website, we don't do that at all. So I think that there's a chance to really change that in digital. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carden knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carda Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carda.com forward slash fundraise. That's carda.com forward slash fundraise. Brian, you have led a distributed team of over a thousand people. For everyone out there that's now learning how to do that, do you have any tips or tricks that have been successful for you building and growing a company that exploded almost 300% growth during COVID while also managing everybody distributed? Any of your best advice you can pay it forward to the group? I'd say my core management point these days is focusing on a top three things, top three goals. And the idea is that anywhere throughout the company, there's a maximum of three things that you should be prioritizing. And you should be dedicating the vast majority of your time to achieving those things. And if someone is asking you for help with something else they're doing, it, it should be on their top three. It's this sort of core concept of like, rather than kind of keeping 12 balls that you're juggling high, but not making any real traction on any of them, being able to really make significant progress on a top couple things. In a remote world, we actually publish a document that has the top three for you know a tremendous amount of managers and executives in our company. And it allows everyone to see very quickly what everyone else is working on in a given month and what they're prioritizing. And I think that that helps us all sort of figure out where our, if we're spending our time in the right place. So that's certainly one thing that I think has helped a lot. Anything that you stopped doing in distributed that you could pay it forward because you felt like it wasn't working well? Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a time when we went early distributed, and I don't know, this is kind of cliche uh, advice, but we, we had initially people would be joining from a conference room where there'd be a bunch of people in a conference room, but also a bunch of people on their phone. And it was a frustrating thing because you could never see the people in the conference room and know who's talking. The audio was bad. It just kind of reminded you of how crappy conference room related phone calls were. So we, we do have the policy that if you're dialing in, even if you're in one of our offices, you have to dial in individually, not in one big conference room, unless it's like a, you know, one to many type of presentation, like an all hands or something like that. Other than that, it, it has to, um, everyone has to dial in individually. Brian, I want to transition now a little bit to you, which, you know, I'll start with sort of the obvious, which is you really are a repeat founder. You know, you are CEO and co-founder of Tap Commerce, which was acquired by Twitter in 2014. 
what did you learn the second time around? Give us like the things that you brought so effortlessly with you to building attentive. Second time around, you know, A, I think on the people front, I think you maybe get a little bit better at having a sense for the type of people that will fit the culture that you want to build rather than just trying to kind of fill seats based on needs. So I think maybe being a little more careful about staffing, particularly in the the first 50 people that you hire, I think that's really essential. Number two, I think is maybe the willingness to take a negative angle on what you're doing and be very willing to kill what you're doing if it's not working. I think that there's a pretty dangerous view in the world of startups of like, just never give up and never quit and persist and go, go, go. And I'm all for persistence, but I think this gets convoluted sometimes with persistence in general versus persistence around a particular business or business idea. And I think it can really turn into bad things when someone spends years of their life working on something that never goes anywhere. So, you know, for us, I think with with your example of what, what we learn, I mean, one of the biggest things we learned was to give up on something. So we had this original concept of using text for, for workplace communication. But, you know, look, we, we pitched hundreds of companies. We had a handful, a bunch of customers that signed on. But we quickly just saw that the willingness to pay wasn't very high and that the market was going to be slow growing. And just it wasn't in line with the type of high growth business we wanted to build. So we ultimately ended up killing it and, you know, changing a bunch of our resourcing and things like that pretty fast. And I think that that mindset is something that I think if it was the first time around, we, we probably would have tried to make it work for a longer time period. Brian, um, again, you've built now two very, very, very successful businesses, and I'm sure many other even smaller ones. When you were growing up, was there something that your parents did that really stood out that you would attribute to making you quite special? My parents weren't in business, but they always encouraged me to do any of the business ideas I had or, you know, help uh, provide and buy things that that supported me in those things. You know, I, I graduated from school for a decade ago. When you when you graduated a decade ago, not a lot of people were going into startups. And on the East Coast, it definitely wasn't kind of like an acceptable or cool pathway. It's gotten cooler recently. I don't know if the recent market turmoil will lead to it being less cool again, but but I think that the message I would give to, to people and, and, and it's just encouraging them to do what they love and to go after career paths that maybe aren't in line with what traditionally was viewed as you know risk-free or whatever it is historically. You dropped out of business school to jump into startup, something I can fully relate to. I uh, dropped out of 2008 as the bottom of the recession was really happening. Um, why did you make that decision and what advice do you have to others debating whether or not business school is the right choice for them or even just like deciding to go start something? How did you know it was time? There is real value in going to business school. And in the business school, I went to um, the first year was kind of all core curriculum. So I, I do think that I learned a bunch in that first year that has been helpful through my uh, career. But when I started looking at the syllabus for the second year of business school, it all sort of focused on your concentration area, which for me was going to be entrepreneurship and maybe some finance stuff. But I was really you know, focused on the entrepreneurship side. And then at the same time, I was offered a job to go work at a startup reporting for the CEO and trying to build the company um, that had just raised some money. And I said, you know, what do I want to do? Do I want to go pay the school 50 grand to go learn for people about doing it? Or do I want to get paid to go do it? And that just seemed like a no-brainer to me. That's a great side-by-side. 
Um, you recently tweeted that all CEOs should have an executive coach. I agree deeply and had one myself, but what have you personally learned from working with a coach that you can help pay it forward to others? Overall, I think the the role of the manager is often to be the coach for the person that they're managing. And, you know, I try to take that mindset with my own direct reports of really coaching them and helping them on the things that they're working on, you know, kind of continuing that there isn't really someone who's there to do that for the CEO. So I think having someone that you could hire to do that for the CEO and who's also working with peer type CEOs so they can bring learnings across those uh, can be really powerful. In terms of one in particular I've learned from my coach, I mean, I the, the coach, I think, is um, for me, I'm lucky I've got an amazing coach who has, I think, helped me tremendously, both personally and professionally, making critical decisions and uh, significantly changing my management style and all sorts of things that uh, you know would, I could talk about for many, many, many podcasts. <laughs> you, again, were not a first-time founder with Attentive. What surprised you? What was like the thing where you're like, God, this still hurts? Or give us any senses of the surprises that you had second time around. I think product market fit is very hard to find true product market fit. And when you see it, there's kind of no question. And, um, and I've seen it twice now, but on the first company, we pivoted like four times. And on this company, we pivoted a few times as well. And I saw what it looked like before those pivots. And I think people can misconstrue what a product market fit might look like because the things that we blew up that we ended up getting rid of and pivoted away from, we had customers that said yes. And we had some major brands that said yes. I just don't think it was solving a burning problem. And our solution didn't do an amazing job of solving that problem. And that's ultimately why you walked away from it. You know, look, there's different types of businesses out there and there's some businesses that can be built solving these problems. But if you're trying to focus on high growth, you really need to see that sort of amazing product market fit where you've got a real burning problem. You've got a great market to serve in that problem and your product actually solves it. That's the other thing I think that people get too excited about sometimes is like they really hear the problem and that gets them excited but they're not thinking critically enough of like, is our product actually solving the problem? And sometimes, and you see that later, right? You see it in retention rates and willingness to pay. But sometimes there's a problem, but they don't really have the solution. Like right now, I'll tell you, there's a big problem in e-commerce that people need to drive traffic to their websites because, you know, the, the changes by Apple has really impacted Facebook. So, you know, people want to drive that traffic at the top of the funnel. That's a really hard thing to do. Maybe by, you know, figuring out ads at the top of the funnel and scaling that, that's really tough. And um, it's a big problem, big meaty problem, but there's not like an easy solution there. Last question on you, Brian. I want to know, what are your tips or tricks for staying sane while juggling everything that comes with being a founder? Some people meditate, some people run. Like, what are yours? One would be that I read a lot of World War II books. The reason why is that um, I always find that if I read uh, a little bit in a World War II book, I immediately will realize that my problems are not that big. <laughs> my problem, people have had far, far greater issues and problems to deal with than you know some some small issue we may be dealing with at our company. So um, I think that can be really grounding to me. What I would not recommend doing is I would not recommend reading these books that people put out with like founder and startup stories where everything's awesome and it turned into some crazy, huge, successful company. To me, they, they do demotivating and stressful to people. Like sometimes I see CEOs reading those books. You can read those books, but like read something that also grounds you a little bit. I'm going to move to the quick fire round guy. And you just literally tell me the first thing that comes to your head as quickly as you can. What gets you out of bed every day? My dog barking. 
<laughs> what is a favorite book that you go back time and time again that's had an impact on your life? It can be any type of book. How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, I love that one. One follow-up. What was the biggest takeaway? Everyone should read that book. This is how people are. What's your favorite interview question when you're trying to get to the heart of who somebody is? One is, what is your greatest career achievement to date? And number two is, what is your ultimate goal? And if someone is listening to this podcast and preparing for an interview, I also really like it when people actually prepare for, for interviews rather than just reading the company website. That's probably one of my biggest things is loving to see how they prepare. What is the biggest pinch me moment that you've had to date at Attentive? So the moment where you like came home after work and said, I just can't believe we accomplished that. What was it? Realizing that someone is a customer, that's a major company that you had no idea was even a customer. I want to fast forward two years. How many days a week do you think people go to offices? Three days. And my last question is, other than Attentive, what is one area of innovation that's piqued your curiosity or interest that you find fascinating? Aviation. I just think there's still a lot of wonder in seeing like uh, a giant piece of steel that we've managed to get to, to fly above the ground. And uh, I think that we may, in our lifetime, allow aviation to really open up the world geopolitically, making it more accessible for people to go around the world will also hopefully make us realize how much more similar all people are to each other. I love that. That is such a great place to end. Brian, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I wish I spent many more hours with you. I feel like I just am starting to learn from you. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, check out attentivemobile.com. Uh, if you're out there and running a company, use Attentive. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Next week, I'll be back with Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel and Brian. Sincerely, we're rooting for you. We're so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Hey, Alexa, thanks so much for having me and I hope everyone has a great day.